0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWendelich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. And here are your hosts, Drew and Janie.
1: Thanks, Ray. Welcome to the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. This is episode four, and we're chatting with Keith Moon. Keith is an iOS developer who's based out of London. Uh, he's been contracting for the last seven years or so. Before that, he was a civil servant, and he recently came out with a book, the Swift 4 Programming Cookbook for Packed Programming. Thank you for joining us,
2: Keith. Thanks, Jenny. So let's talk about the 30,000-foot view of what you want to talk about today.
0: Uh, what I wanted to talk about today was some techniques for building, Components and modules that work great with Swift and work great with Objective C. I
1: mean, people still use Objective C. You know, I thought it was you know like that thing back in the dark ages that you know, like the, the the old neck beards and the gray beards would <laughs> go and, and interact with. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Until we get that stable ABI, those uh those private SDKs have to stay in Objective C. Trust me,
0: I know. Indeed. In fact, in fact, the uh the genesis for this um was uh I was working with a, a company that had built a really great um, Swift. SDK for their their service that they wanted to give out to, to developers and partners, and it was great. It used um, Swift to its max. It had used a lot of the the great Swift language features, but then they had a client that was still in Objective C land. You know, and needed needed an Objective C interface to this SDK. Uh, so I came in to sort of provide an Objective C wrapper around um, this great Swift SCK.
1: So you're providing an objective perspective. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Indeed. So so give me an idea right off the bat. It's obviously, Objective-C and Swift have different naming styles. Yes. So so obviously, going one direction or going the other direction, there's going to be some ugliness right off the bat.
0: Yes. The the Swift Interop um, system handles a lot of that. So as an example... Uh, Objective C naming conventions usually involve you uh, your method names reading like a sentence. So things like table view cell for rower index path that that sort of thing. Your your it reads like a sentence. Um, there's a lot of um, connecting words, um, and you restate the type of parameter you're providing in the method names. Uh, However, Swift naming conventions uh, are a lot more concise, a lot more stripped down. Uh, because you're providing the type as of the method, you don't need to repeat the type. So for instance, you don't need to say that it is a cell because you know it's a cell because its type is UITableViewCell. So the me- the naming conventions are different. Now, the like I say, the, the Interop library uh, does a lot of these things for you, but it doesn't always... Do exactly what you would expect, and perhaps you want to provide. You perhaps you want to be a little more verbose in your Objective C naming, and you can actually do that with uh, the at Objective C um, annotation. So, if you've got a class name that you want to add a prefix to, so we're back in Objective C land. Very often, you'll do a two-letter prefix for your um, your class names. Uh, You can add that. Um, And you can tweak the naming of your methods by uh, having at objective C, and then in brackets, the How you want that Swift object to be presented in Objective C. So that's really helpful. So, like,
1: I remember back when Swift was originally introduced back in 2014, a lot of people had kind of complained a little bit about how it didn't have certain features, it was a little bit clunky, and there was a bunch of different other stuff that they didn't particularly like about it, but it was necessary in order for Swift to actually interact with Objective C. So, like, you know, for better or for worse, we have all of these Objective C frameworks and so forth that have been around for, you know, 20 plus years. Like, I know, um, when they were kind of rumblings before Swift was announced that um, there was going to be a new language I remember thinking well they can't compl- they can't replace the language because they've got all of this legacy stuff and that's the whole reason that people actually like do things with Apple because they've got all of these you know powerful frameworks like AV Foundation and like you know like UI Kit and all this other stuff that are all written in Objective-C and like it's really important to be able to preserve all of this work that they have done for the last 20 years because they really built up a wonderful complex bunch of frameworks that allow you to do a lot of incredibly complicated stuff very easily. So, like, it's it's not necessarily, like, you know, a good thing to get rid of the, you know, to toss the baby out with a bath of water by, by completely getting rid of Objective-C, because it's, we have all of this really good history with
0: it. Yeah. I mean, it used to be, it used to be hard, or it used to be more of uh, a problem interacting with uh with objective c because like you say all of the framework libraries are written in objective c in the swift 2 era the naming conventions although swift's naming conventions wanted to be concise. When interacting with the Objective-C libraries, you would often find that you would get these very verbose sentence-like methods when when interacting with Cocoa Touch. But uh, Swift 3 brought in a lot of changes and the sort of great rename, which involved a lot of these methods, uh, becoming more Swift-like. So rather than that, this interop library that that handles the the Swift to the Objective-C to swift uh, conversion, rather than just uh, kind of directly map from Objective-C to Swift, there was more massaging of the of the structure uh, and the and the naming conventions so that Cocoa Touch uh, APIs looked more Swifty. So things things are better now. And actually, that's I think that's um, it's important when you when you are trying to build these uh, components and these modules that uh, you want to provide to other developers and you want to be able to be useful in both Swift and Objective-C. To, you want to be able to sort of define your, your API service. You need to decide what are the parts of this component that I'm going to expose to the world, I'm going to expose to developers to use, and what are the parts that you are going to uh, keep internal. Because all of that internal stuff, you can write in Swift, you can you can use all of the um, the struts and the, the the complex enums and the generics that you, you want to use, and it's just uh, the the surface of that uh, component, that API. Uh, interface that you're providing that you need to try and provide something that is both feels native in Swift and feels also feels native in Objective C.
2: You you'd mentioned uh, about wrapping things in at object in at objc. Shifting from Swift three to Swift four, can you explain how at objc is now deprecated except for when it's not deprecated?
0: <laughs> so as far as I'm aware, the the changes involve the fact that yeah, the OBJ um, annotation used to be not needed when you were inheriting from NSObject. So effectively, you're, you're inheriting from a Objective-C based object. And so you get the exposure of your Swift class to Objective-C for free. Now, as part of Swift 4, that isn't the case and you have to explicitly declare that you want your uh, Swift classes um, exposed to Objective C. So if if you have an a, a NS object based Swift object, it doesn't get exposed to Objective C by default. You you have to make that decision, and that and that's actually that's good, and it, it is it helps this uh, process that we're we're trying to build here, which is to be deliberate about. Uh, the APIs that we provide to Swift and the the APIs we provide to Objective C, so that we can provide a nice API uh, experience for the the components that we're building.
2: And this is primarily uh, one of the things that bites us when we're setting up selectors for things like target actions.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You you build you build your nice. Um, swift stuff, and then you find you actually need to expose it to things like target actions and um, that you end up realizing you, you have to expose yourself to, to Objective-C land because Cocoa Touch is still written in Objective-C.
1: Please, this is a family podcast. Quit talking about exposing yourself.
2: <laughs> you know, I I was fighting the urge.
1: Well, you know, I was the one who was going to say it.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it might be worth just talking about some of the things... I was thinking maybe it might be worth just talking about some of the things that you that, that make you know code Swifty or, or things great language features in Swift that that you end up um, that cut you off from Objective C compatibility. Um, Swift uh, has really first party support for um, struts and enums. They they really become sort of first-class citizens in in Swift world, which uh, unlike uh, Objective-C. So you can create uh, complex struts, you can use enums that aren't necessarily uh, integer-based and can have their own methods and and computed variables. You have complex generics. There is generics in Objective-C, but there is far more availability for uh, generics in Swift. So all of these things are great language features and great things that you might want to use as part of your API but the the problem then comes that in using them as part of your API you are limiting you you are stopping the ability for objective C users to use those methods so you need an alternative the process i'm trying to describe here is uh, to get the best of both worlds to enable you to use your um, great swift language features in your API but then also have consideration for Objective-C users of your
2: code. So if you're basically using a complex enum that may return some form of tuple, uh, or the ep- the enum itself may have a tuple attached to it, then ha- you definitely need some kind of wrapper around that because Objective-C is just gonna look blankly at it. I, I know that I- I- I've become a complete convert from NS error to error just due to how much you can do with error. But I can see that you're saying, if I need to be able to have this code interchangeable being used and consumed by an Objective-C code, I've got to be careful about how I'm doing it in the general architecture Mm -hmm. or I'm going to be doing wrappers on everything.
0: Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, And there's some stuff that you do get for free. So errors, when they are, it's it's a very common pattern for errors to be be declared as uh, enums, enums that conform to the the error protocol. And when you do that, uh, you will actually get conversion from that enum to a ns error for free and it simply takes uh, the because the only thing that's that really the, an ns error is is uh, a domain and a code you could also have a, a user info dictionary but uh, the it's the interrupt library turns the namespace of the enum into the domain and the order of the enum into into the code, uh, so you you get uh, you get some of that stuff for free. But if you have more more complex, you know, you maybe you have a error strut that has some extra information, then this is where you might want to consider creating a wrapper object for these. Uh, very swifty things that you want your API to return
2: one of the one of the common errors that I, I would make was often an error that would tell me where it was processing wrong using say a, a, a URL session where it would also include in that an integer value for the uh, for the HTTPS or HTTP return code
0: yes yeah exactly that's that's one instance where where sort of a wrapper object might be useful and and it's and that's really simple you can just create a an NS object, that uh, and you write this and you can write this in swift uh, an ns object that takes uh, or, or an ns sorry an ns object based object that will take your swift return value or the, the thing you want to provide in your api that's swifty takes that value and exposes the relevant I'm exposing myself again uh, exposes the relevant properties via Objective C based methods. So so that wrapper concept's a, a good way of a good way of doing it.
1: So one question I have is we're we're talking about making sure that your APIs and so forth are available to both Swift and Objective C programmers. So I know that like so like is your intention primarily that you're trying to accommodate the people who are you know kind of like you know crufty and like I you know I don't want to go work with Swift because Swift is you know constantly changing or like because I know. Like I work with metal and I work with like um OpenGL and Core Audio and so forth, and that those are incredibly like, you know, low level APIs that don't work well with the Swift runtime. And so like there are genuinely use cases where Swift can't accommodate things like you know the like Core Audio because Core Audio is not set up to actually work consistently with the Swift runtime. So like there are genuine use cases for for creating this other than you know just you know neckbeard saying that they don't want to go and learn Swift because Swift keeps changing constantly.
2: I, I'm laughing here because Janie's missing the fact that both of us are people with beards on our necks. (laughs) (laughs) We're both very beardy, yes.
0: We are in a transition period, I think, to Swift being very, very dominant in uh, Mac and and iOS development, but we're not there yet. There's a lot of legacy code that is in Objective-C. There is a lot. And if you are in the situation where you're providing your code as a service to another developer or to another company or to another team, you really want to make that code interface. That code interface is your product. It is the, the thing that your customers are going to be using. And so you really want to make it as easy as possible and you want to provide them it wherever they need it. You know, um, if the, they need it, they needed an objective c interface then you know you have an objective c interface if they if they want swift interface then then you have a swift interface for them and and no matter which way you come at it you have a really nice easy to use um, api uh, and this this also applies to open source code as well it might be it might be something that you've built yourself that you want people to use and and by making it compatible with both languages means that more people can use it.
2: And it's interesting because if there's anything Apple tends to to create its ubiquity um, going all the way back to the APIs being in Pascal and then after that having the foundation classes that came from core foundation because there was so much legacy code and who was going to use this new Objective-C which was somewhat there but not very robust and people eventually moved to Objective-C. And Apple said, we really think you should be writing all your stuff in Objective-C. And we're now at that same point that you know Swift has become stable enough that Apple really thinks new software should go forward. But you've got tons of legacy code and you've got to cater. And the best thing I would guess is if you're creating these APIs is to help the users transition as well.
0: Yes, yes, totally. So there's there's a second part of this. We've talked about how we can take our, our Swift code and do some work to make it exposed better to, to be uh, to be better for Objective C. The the flip side of that is that now you have a really great Swift API, uh, that you know, maybe accepts an enum or returns a strut or something. Um, and you've created a really great Objective-C API that the Objective-C users can see. The problem is, is that the Swift users of your API now see both, the Swift interface that you've got, uh, but they also see the sort of secondary Objective-C interface that you've got. And, and that's sometimes... Maybe maybe that's what you want. Maybe you have the... You, know, you can... Give them the option but if you wanted to really sort of tie down uh, your interfaces so that you are just exposing the uh, you're just exposing the apis that you want for the relevant language then there's actually a little trick um that, that i think uh, can be really useful when you write your objective c friendly apis you're writing them in swift but they're just they're, they're now objective c friendly What you actually want to do is hide them from other Swift code because they're only going to be used within Objective-C. If you have Swift uh, clients, if you have Swift people using your APIs, they're actually going to use your your very Swifty APIs. So you want to hide your Objective-C-based ones. And you can use the at available annotation to do this. The at available annotation is in Swift to enable you to indicate that your methods only work with certain OS levels. So you can say that, ah, well, this this particular method uses some part of iOS 11. So only if you're running iOS 11 can you actually use this code. So you can use the at available annotations to do these sorts of checks at compile time, which is really nice. But you can actually tell them to dis- discount all OS versions, which means that it's never exposed. But this check only works in Swift. So therefore, by saying that your API isn't available to any OS versions, you've made it disappear from Swift land, but it's still exposed and available uh, to Objective-C land. And so to do that, it's just at available, open brackets, star, so you're saying for all platforms, comma, unavailable, close brackets. So you're saying for all platforms, all uh, versions of the platforms, I want to make this unavailable. And so then it's it's not available from other Swift code.
2: Is that, that, that it almost sounds like an unintended feature that, is it dangerous that we could be leveraging a bug that Apple may change? I
0: think that uh, that certainly is a consideration. Yeah, uh, it, it you're right. It does seem as though what you're saying is it should be completely unavailable and, and that would also count for Objective-C. I think it's something to keep an eye on, but it's um, it can be useful if you really want to sort of tidy up your interfaces. There's one other thing that I think is worth mentioning in this Objective-C Swift back and forth that we've got going on. There is a, there is a little kind of gotcha that I've encountered that I think's worth sort of highlighting. When you are knee-deep in, in uh, a mixed project of Objective-C and Swift, when you have a Swift object that you are... Um, providing to a mixed code base. And that Swift object is then used in your Objective-C code and it's used, say, as the property for an NS object, based object. And then you try and reference that property from Swift, you'll find that it isn't there. So the problem is, is that you've gone from Swift code, you've used that Swift code in Objective-C, and then you've tried to reference that use of the Swift code and Objective C from Swift, and it, it it will not work. The property won't be visible. And if you if you think about it a little bit, it makes sense. Because your Swift code gets compiled, gets made available um, via the dash H header to the Objective-C code. The Objective-C code uses it, but at the time that your Swift code was compiled, the Swift code was not in Objective-C land. And so this back and forth uh, doesn't work.
2: So what is the way to prevent this from blowing up on you
0: yeah so if you find yourself in that situation it is a bit of a problem so you could take the object in objective c the one that has a property that originated from swift and rewrite that object in swift that is usually the approach i go for i mean usually the approach i try and do is if if you have to make major changes to an objective c object consider rewriting it in swift that's how we slowly turn a Objective-C project into a Swift project?
2: Unfortunately, the problem there comes from, again, those closed SDKs, which you're basically handing them a framework to be attached to their project. We talked about the, the, you know, we talk almost on a regular basis about the Swift ABI and how that's due to come out in Swift 5. But you are still at times forced to work entirely in Objective C, or basically create a version for each Xcode along the way. Yeah. saying Okay. So here is your framework for Xcode 9.1. Here's your framework for Xcode 9.2 beta 1. And we don't want to do that. Obviously, we, we want our ABIs. Yeah. So let's talk again about some of these other gotchas. Knowing I've got to write in Objective C. I know most likely these people who are creating new code with my framework are writing in Swift. What are the the really dangers that 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 we can avoid, or the things to really watch out for, besides the things we've talked about. Good question.
1: Thank you. Well, I, I, just, I wanted to say um, I was at uh, Swift by Northwest a week or two ago, and uh, James Dempsey, the, the the rock star of the <laughs> iOS community, um, one of his songs that he did was he he did a riff on uh, American Pie by going Bye bye stable <laughs> Swift Baby <laughs>
2: <laughs> awesome someday someday my ship will come in yes
0: a lot of the, a lot of the problems that i see with um the interoperability you do get some odd behaviors from xcode things like the dash swift uh, file when you include it in your objective c code suddenly not being there and things are usually solved by um an xcode blitz Deleting derived data and trying again. That that sort of Swift Objective C Swift uh, gotcha is is the one that I've the only one that I've seen that isn't solvable. Pretty much everything else is solvable, and it's usually you know you've forgotten to expose the <laughs> done a lot of exposure today um, uh, to expose your objects to. Uh, objective c or uh, you forget to add objective c code to your bridging header to bring it into swiftland those that's another issue access control is quite a useful tool as well i mean then that is often where you'll find issues in that you've forgotten that you actually haven't made a class or a method public um, and then when you come to use it uh, in Objective-C uh, in a different module, you, you don't understand why it isn't there. And it's because you didn't actually uh, make it public. But the access control is, can be your friend. And if you are trying to create these nice interfaces, the ability to limit what is made available outside of your module Uh, And having that control over it is really, really helpful.
2: For those of you keeping track with the uh, drinking game, we have mentioned yet again this week, blowing away derived data will solve a problem. We talked a lot about the interop and I, I, I like putting this to, to people on the technologies going forward. If you, if you had Apple's ear, hopefully somebody from Apple is listening at some point. What would you like to see improved, or what, or what in the process right now going between Objective C and Swift code is is still something that you feel could be simplified or or is annoying to you?
0: Oh, there is there's definitely parts of. Um... There's parts of Cocoa Touch uh, and uh, the the other and associated frameworks that... You suddenly come across, and they don't—they don't look in Swift like any of the other parts of Swift. And you—it's—you know—you've hit like a deep, dark corner of the SDK because Apple have not got around to really making that, you know, Swiftified. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, Janie,
2: you had mentioned uh, Core Audio.
1: Oh yeah, Core Audio is kind of in the, the the basement of all of the Apple. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a few of the the the
0: C-based APIs that are still around that you would think um, would get a bit of a, a, an updated treatment. Uh, keych- the keychain APIs are all still pretty hideous, um, and you, I always end up using some Swift wrapper just so that they're nicer to play with. So I think maybe just a, yeah, a probably a, a good audit of, of the whole frameworks um the whole coco touch just to uh, see about those those sort of dark recesses that, that still haven't got good swift conversion support
2: and of course with coco touch you can throw in app kit indeed i'd say the watch kit and TBOS are pretty much born in the world where swift was pretty much a, a target so yeah. those really feel like they natively ran for the swift world definitely great thank you so much keith this is fantastic food for thought um, as I said, I, I'm working on a closed SDK, which we just supplied them with a framework. So you know, my my coding that I inherited, it's all Objective C, and it's going to stay there until our magic Swift five hopefully hands us that that stable ABI. Rather you than me.
1: Thanks, Keith. It's really good to keep in mind that we have our our other brethren in the iOS community who are still using Objective-C for, you know, personal or whatever professional reasons. So it's it's good not to forget that these are members of our community and that they deserve respect and time to speak about as well. So we're entering the back half of the show, and Drew is going to share with us some of his adventures in Mac development.
2: (laughs) Go ahead, Drew. I, I have to preface, and one of the reasons I love having Janie as a partner is because it is obvious that Janie is far smarter than I am. She has uh, published books now on metal. She speaks at conferences. So it is her job to be the tech brain. I work primarily on the top level. So basically, I will code for paycheck. And I've been working now in iOS for about four or five years. I have been working on the Mac since 1984 when it was first introduced. And I, I, I've programmed it in Pascal and in uh, many a, a framework. So it was interesting. Interesting because I decided I was going to try to learn this week the NS Touch Bar. And I got the new Mac because it really was interesting to me. I like gadgets. I like playing with the toys. So the Touch Bar a- appealed to me because it was contextual buttons replacing what were slowly becoming more and more overcrowded F keys. And yes, for those who use Emacs, the escape button is still there.
0: Who would have thought using GU- GUIs, you know? It's crazy. We're actually you know, past Mm. the 90s.
1: I was just going to say, when I went back to school for the um, iOS programming thing, my my dad hasn't done any any kind of programming. He took a computer science back in 1992, and he told me that I was never going to be able to find a job because I wasn't learning a real language like like Fortran or Pascal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll be honest. The first time I saw Rhapsody, uh, the first time I saw OS X as it was presented to us, the first thing I did was I popped open the terminal, and I did an MKDIR just to see a folder appear in the finder. And that was, was bliss to me. But I like the idea of having contextual menus easily approachable. And the touch bar really gave me a sense of promise of that. And as I mentioned earlier, if Apple makes anything, it's ubiquity. You start using it, and then when you go back to something else, you're like, I can't go back. I, I remember when Apple changed the swipe direction, and and everybody said that was going to be a pain in the neck, and now I can't go back. It's almost like they know
0: what they're talking about.
2: Right. So I figured I should be able, even though I haven't done Mac in five years, I did Mac for God knows how many years. And I figured... How hard could it be? Well, let me account for what has changed in the time since I've done Mac programming. One, at that point, storyboards had come out, and they weren't quite stable enough for Mac OS, so we didn't adopt them. Secondarily, there was no Swift at that point, so I was doing Objective-C, not using storyboards, so I figured I'd jump in, and I grabbed one of the the Ray Wenderlich tutorials, just to, to take me through it, but of course, I decided to take some of my own code and add in a mac os um, target to this and it shouldn't be a problem well the good news is that the api itself is really straightforward there's not a lot to it it's really simplified down to what you need and that is that you have touch bars you have touch bar items and that's really it. And the touch bar items themselves are really nothing more than views. NS views, because you're working in app kit, you get, past, as long as you're not doing anything crazy like trying to use the, the, the backing layers or the animation layers, it's not, as crazy, but it's a view.
0: So who's responsible for the animation between the the states on the touch
2: bar? The touch bars themselves you attach to your responder chain. And you can have multiple touch bars. And effectively, what you do is you just walk down the responder chain saying, okay, am I gonna handle this? Is somebody down the responder chain gonna handle this? And it pretty much follows the logic, and that's what makes it so easy for it to fall into a contextual state. And so those are
0: the sort of containers that you see. So for instance, you'll have a group of buttons that
2: are handling volume. Mm -hmm. And so these are the containers you're talking about? Right. Now, since they're standard views, you can pretty much put any view in there you want. You can put an NSView and do all of your own drawing, all your own animation. But at the same time, you can use a slider. Though a slider's not recommended. They've actually replaced that with a scrubber. Yeah, so the, the scrubber is is really similar to the UI picker in that it's specifically for the touch bar.
0: Right, but it's it's uh, horizontal, almost the horizontal version of a picker.
2: Now, this all being said... I discovered that my coating didn't go quite as smoothly as I thought it would, and this is One of the pitfalls of, I should be able to throw this together in a day or two. I don't really have to go crazy with this. And the first thing I did was I entirely missed the idea of subclassing the window for the view controller to have the window actually say, am I gonna handle this? If not, let's handle it down. Now there's some really simple setup and I have to say that the documentation is very clear on NS Touch Bar and the NS Touch Delegates. One of the nice things is if you're used to Delegates And data providers, which has become a very common programming model, it makes sense if you're familiar with how bindings work. Now, a word of caution, of course, is that as Swift changes from rev to rev, naming conventions are changing slightly from step to step. Things that were like uh, NS Touch Bar Identifier is sort of NS Touch bar Dot Identifier now. But the good news is that Xcode's fix comes along and deals with that rather cleanly. Uh, you do want to do a bit more of having the model And the controller really taking as much smarts out of these views as possible. Because while my interface in the window has a slider, initially I put a slider into the touch bar and that slider fills up. Now you can put spacing in to reduce that. You can do centering on it. You can center in groups. And uh, to back up with those groups, the nice thing is, is that you can say, well, this group has required elements and this group has customizable elements and that all is per contextual bar and the advantage there is if you want to have you know, now you're going to get some for free when you deal with things like you're in a text field and you've got your cut copy and all of that but when you're dealing in your own contextual environment or your own contextual states, there are times that you want things to stay there or things not to be there. So you basically can set up whether or not something is required or something is not customizable.
0: Is it possible to have views that take input
2: in the touch bar? No. One of the things, and and there's a, a large definition on things to be aware of for the touch bar. And of course, all of the standard Apple rules on the touch bar are things that Apple says, this is really what you want to use the touch bar for. And of course, everybody's gone out there and done whatever they can on it. The Touch bar is meant to be an interface that would otherwise be simpler than dropping back to the mouse. So a great example is an Adobe Photoshop. When you're changing filters, you can basically run the filters by sliding across the touch bar rather than having to click each filter. So you get a much quicker response, but you can't type into it. And likewise, it's really not meant to be a feedback. It's not a display. And that's really a hard mentality since you're dealing with what's effectively either a mini iphone or a stretched apple watch in that it's a screen it is undeniably a touch screen and when i say that people have immediately dispensed with that um you can find examples on github of nyan cat or the night rider thing going back and forth just animated oh,
0: that's awesome that's a great
2: idea yeah I, I i immediately downloaded them because that's beautiful and it, it is just a great example of how you can use any view and sounds and it'll be there but that's not its intent it's it's really meant to be those quick inputs to get you through certain contextual processes faster now one of the other things that's really important it's not an Easter egg location for people who ponied up for the new laptop. If it's not an interface in the app, don't put it in the touch bar because people won't have access to that. So it's a keyboard in its own way, not a display. It needs to complement what's in the app for people who don't have a touch, touch bar. And most importantly, since it's keyboard and it's meant to be that instantaneous input, if you have an input that is there on the touch bar, it's got to respond. It, it, it can can't be a delayed thing. It can't be. Well, I'll get to that shortly. And my experiment, as I said, which was a bit of a, a, a bit of a learning curve, was that I had a slider on the uh, on the window and the slider basically had integer clicks to set a a download data interval, whether it was one minute, 30 minutes, one hour, and a series of enums that basically were assigned to those time intervals. And I initially put the slider in the touch bar, which while pretty was a little large, and then I moved to the scrubber. But now what you've got is you've got to bind those variables, because when the scrubber changes, obviously that scrubber has to go back and immediately affect the screen and if you've got complementary controls those controls have to mirror together they have to respond as if one controls the other other controls the one
0: right you would need direct manipulation because your finger is literally on top of the control i guess and Mm -hmm. if if there
2: was a lot of lag it would break the illusion right and so consider it ux consider it the main thread and effectively you are handling events. You can either handle the events by binding to them. You can handle the events by delegation. Um, The Scrubber has a Scrubber delegate and the Scrubber has a, a Scrubber data source. And much like the slider, the scrubber has continuous or non-continuous response. Very similar to a table view or to a a collection view, is it's saying, okay, how many units are there? How do I flow it? Is it continuous? And then when I tell you what index I need, what view do I put there? It's really good that Apple has added easy instantiation now for their views. You can say, give me a text field with this text in it, or you can say, give me a slider with this minval, this max maxval. So you can simply set up an NS custom touch bar item, and then you just attach any view to it, whether it be a text field, an NS slider, an NS scrubber, you set that up, you attach that to the custom touch bar item view, and it works.
1: I did just want, to, uh, so I spent a uh, year doing Mac development, but I didn't really do a lot of UI stuff. And one thing that I, I have trouble with when I come back to Mac development from iOS is that it's a completely different way of thinking about things. Because even though, you know, we use Xcode and we actually work with Macs or whatever, we don't, we don't necessarily think about things like the menu bars or the touch bar or other things that are there because they just, we're so used to them as a paradigm and we don't think about them from a developer perspective because they're just there. So, like, that was a big thing that I had to kind of wrap my head around when I try to go from iOS to Mac development is this idea that even though it's a completely, a completely different way of thinking about things, even though it's something that's completely familiar to the point that I don't think about it, you know, it's kind of like if you start thinking about what it's like to breathe, that all of a sudden you're very aware of a bunch of things that just happen because they're not something that you necessarily
2: consciously think about. And like, like I said before, my last time doing the Mac development was pre-storyboard, so I was basically handling the responder chain and when to change my menus and how to attach to those menus. Whereas now you can basically connect right through the storyboard.
0: Nice. You've you've played around with uh, the touch bar uh, programming. It. Do you find yourself using it an awful lot? And can you can you see
2: gaps where? Uh, it should be used better? Well, I mean, it it can always be used better, and what I'm thrilled with is that the... The major applications out there, the ones that now cost you XD dollars a month, are regularly adding better planned out and better designed contextual buttons. Two things I, I, I failed to mention, and this is really wonderful, is anybody who has Xcode can have a pretend touch bar, even if they don't have that Mac. Because for those who don't have the touch bar Mac who are developing the software, Xcode gives you that solution. And that is in the Xcode. I think it's in the window menu, show touch bar. And that will open up a touch bar in whatever state it would be on your desktop in a small floating window. And from this point, As long as Xcode is running, even if Xcode goes to the background, that touch bar is real. It works just like a touch bar. If you run the customize for an application, it's there. So you can get that feel and see whether or not it works for you. And it's really helpful on a project, if you have a PM, to say here, here's how you can play with it to feel like what would work contextually. On top of that is the other tool that somebody recommended to me. It will definitely be in the show notes. And that is Better Touch Tool. You can create your own touch bar widgets that are not associated with an app that do any kind of Apple scripting style macro. I have three specific Xcode projects I'm working on currently. So I have created an Xcode button. And what Xcode does is it will run the current Version of Xcode if it's not open, and it will then pop open to show me the three projects that are all now touch bar buttons. That when I hit one of those, it will open that in Xcode. Well,
1: thanks a lot, Drew. Um, thank you so much for talking about like you know the Mac OS. I know I, I when I did the toss a little bit earlier when we went into the Mac OS stuff, like I, I kind of mentioned that we we tend to kind of forget our, our brethren in the you know the Objective C and the Mac OS communities. Like we're so fixated on all of the the new shiny technology that we kind of forget that there's legacy technology that we use every single day and that constitutes the fabric of the Cocoa frameworks and the iOS and Mac communities. And we just, I'm really glad that we got a chance to kind of shine a light on not only Objective-C, but also Mac OS, because these are really important technologies that are foundational to all of the things that we do every single day. And so I'm really happy that we had a chance during the podcast to kind of talk about these things that we kind of take for granted and sometimes forget exist or we forget that other members of our communities are working with these in order to create all of the tools that make our lives so much better so thank you so much both of you for coming on and talking about mac os and objective c that wraps up another episode of the ray wenderlick podcast tune in next time for another edition back to you ray
0: and that's a wrap thanks again everybody for listening to the raywenderlick.com podcast we hope you enjoyed it
2: and don't forget to leave a rating on itunes see you next time